Love that intro. Love that intro. For those of you who don't know, that is from the soundtrack of the film Hannah, directed by Joel Wright. It's a good movie. It's a hell of a good movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. Well, you're not here for my movie opinion. That's a whole other podcast. This is The Hurt Take. You find yourself back for another round, and I am your host, Reese Dobigan. What do we got to talk about this week? What do we got to talk about this week? Well, there was a there was a UFC card this weekend. There was a Bellator card this weekend. And there was a premier boxing fight this weekend. So, a nice loaded card for the... Uh, for the old uh, combat sports. Which was nice. Which was nice to see. And it, a hell of a weekend in sports in general. Actually. Uh, the MLS Cup. Toronto FC. First championship for that city in who knows how many years. The Manchester Derby. Man United. Man City on Sunday. Hell of a game. Some big NFL matchups. Carson Wentz. A lot of people thought he was going to win the MVP. Tears his ACL out for the year. Throws the NFC playoff race, the MVP race, and the Super Bowl race all up in the air. It's a hell of a weekend. And maybe none were more important, and likely none of those were more underwatched than Vasily Lomachenko versus Guillermo Rigondeau. Matchup of two, two, two time gold medalists in the Olympics. We'll get to that a little bit later. But this is primarily an MMA show, so come on. I'm not going to get off topic. I know what you're here for. What was the big thing in the MMA world? Well, UFC Fight Night, Fresno, slash UFC Fight Night, Ortega versus Swanson, or UFC Fight Night, California. I don't know how they name these things anymore. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. But either way, the main fight on the card, the headliner, was Brian Ortega versus Cub Swanson. A premier featherweight uh, featherweight matchup. Two top ten guys. For Cub Swanson, some thought possibly a title shot on the line for him. Brian Ortega, not so much. But still a huge step up in competition for him. And man... That was a nice fight. That was a great fight. A real testament to the sport of mixed martial arts. Because it had a little bit of everything. And, gosh, I mean, you can't say much more about um, about both fighters, to be quite honest. Cub Swanson, really, I thought, was winning the fight throughout. Um, winning the exchanges on the feet. You know, he was doing a really... He's, he is one of those guys, I was watching that fight, and I was thinking, man... You know, if only he could transport his brain as it is now into a younger version of himself because, boy, he's he's really come a long way. He used to be a bit of a wild man striker, used to get um, kind of be his own worst enemy, get too far out ahead of himself. I mean, there's that, that famous clip of Greg Jackson. All this is more recent, but Greg Jackson getting upset with his own corner man Working alongside him for the Cub Swanson uh, fight against Duho Choi, basically getting mad at the guy because the guy was was saying things that were going to work up Cub Swanson. And when Cub Swanson gets worked up, he loses his cool, he loses his focus, he's not the same fighter. 
And Cub Swanson, back when he was younger, was just an athletic freak, uh, uh, an amazing fighter. And now he's you really have seen him mature into this such a great understanding of especially the striking game, but the sport in general. He's a true mixed martial artist. So it was um, great to see he was doing so well. And then Brian Ortega, the younger guy, the more up and coming guy, showed what he's all about. And, and damn, <laughs> that was, I mean, his, his grappling ability, his technical jujitsu game is pretty incredible. I can't. I think maybe I put him up there with uh, Charles Oliveira. Two jujitsu practitioners that they kind of. I mean, they hunt for those submissions and they can get them. Um, they've really adapted the submission game for MMA. You know, a lot of guys don't necessarily do that. Damian Maya. Some would say, yeah, but largely Maya is a top player. He wants to get you to the mat and play from the top game so that he can then eventually, um, you know, get to a mount and force you to, to roll and take your back as opposed to guys like Oliveira and, uh, Ortega who they can, they can beat you in jujitsu on the feet because they're always, if you leave a neck out there, if your posture is bad, if you're, if they can break your posture and get kind of, uh, a front headlock type position, you are in a lot of danger. And Ortega showed that twice in this fight. In the first round, he, he got it a little bit late, uh, but sunk in an anaconda choke, uh, got it to the mat, used some incredible legwork to pry Swanson's arms away from defending the choke, and uh, ultimately the clock ran out on him. But in the second round, he did essentially the same thing, got up against the cage and was able to break Cub's posture, pull his head forward. And when you when you kind of pull a guy's head forward in jiu-jitsu, of course, you, you, you roll your shoulders forward and you expose your neck. And Ortega did a fantastic job of uh, taking advantage of Swanson, uh, kind of having bad posture and then snatching his neck. Uh, and really sunk in that guillotine choke hard. He got he he really sunk that in hard, um, almost right off the hop. And that's the thing about Ortega, man. This is guy is really exciting going forward uh, from a stylistic point of view because he can sink in those submission attempts so quickly. You know, there's that saying, so um, position before submission. Ortega's a guy who can get position and snap in that submission almost simultaneously. It's pretty incredible to watch. Uh, and that's ultimately how he got it. And, of course, it's a crazy finish because Cub Swanson is so strong that Ortega locked in the guillotine, threw himself up, and, or, and, and Swanson was able to hold him up despite the fact that his neck was cranked so far forward because Ortega had that guillotine locked in so tight that, that Cub was basically holding Ortega's whole body weight up with the back of his neck. It, it can't, his neck must not feel very good after this. Uh, and then Ortega was able to adjust in midair, kick off the cage uh, a couple of times. But man, his, his str he is strong once he cinches that in. and it was, it was a hell of a fight, a hell of a finish. Super, And then, of course, Ortega on the mic. I mean, come on. The, 
what a good dude, right? Like, we're so used in the MMA to seeing guys who are just full of testosterone and aggressive and want to curse out everybody on the mic. And that's fun and that's entertaining, but, every, you know, you'll get a guy like Brian Ortega who just seems like he's genuinely a good dude. He said that his greater purpose is that he wants to... Uh, uh, to do charity work, and this is what his platform is for that, and that's great. You know, I commend I commend him for that. That's awesome. He also said that he thinks that you know he doesn't want he doesn't think he's the number one contender. He feels that Frankie Edgar should get that shot, uh, that first crack at at Max Holloway. Hey, kudos to Ortega for you know it, for for being realistic too. That's something in MMA we miss out on a lot. There's a lot of MMA fighters who, when they get a mic in front of them. All rationality goes out the window, and there's no, it's understandable to a degree. Mentally, a lot of fighters have to think of themselves as the best of the best, and they can never be beat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But sometimes there is that tone deafness where they get on the mic and they say things that just aren't true, and most people know them to not be true, and thus it makes them look bad. Meanwhile, Ortega, I mean, what he said was true. You know, Edgar is the number one guy. Uh, Ortega beating Cub Swanson does not make him the number one contender. It makes him a more exciting proposition, but really, he's not the number one guy for Holloway's title. So that was nice to see, you know, him also, you know, be um, uh, humble in victory, but also promote a guy like Frankie Edgar and give him his props. So that was that was cool. Uh, as for Cub Swanson, apparently this was the last fight on his UFC contract. Uh, Dana White has come out since and said that, you know, he wants to re-sign him. He wants to, quote, make him happy, which, I mean, I saw that headline and I had to refresh the page. It was like reading a science fiction novel or something like Dana White wants to make a fighter happy. Okay, but he did. Uh, apparently, they want to bring Cub back. So it would be nice to see him fighting in the UFC, continue on uh, at the, the top level. So hopefully we'll see what happens there. Elsewhere on that card, at Bantamweight, uh, Marlon Moraes, uh, wow, uh, I mean, not much more to say than that, just an absolute vicious knockout of Aljamain Sterling, um, you know, if you've seen the clip, he, he, Aljamain really premeditates and does not, uh, set up his takedown, they, there's kind of a break, uh, the referee, uh, breaks them, and immediately after the break, uh, Aljamain just dives in for this takedown, totally naked takedown. And Moraes looks like he was going for some, like a leg kick or a body kick. And Aljamain basically threw himself into the knee. So, you know, there's a lot of fighters who part of what makes them effective is not that they can hit hard. Uh, it's that they have good timing or they can uh, coax their opponent into stepping into a strike which the force of you moving towards a punch or a kick or a knee only increases when... So that's it's like two cars hitting each other full speed as opposed to one car hitting a stationary car or, or a car that's moving in reverse, right? Aljamain threw himself directly into the force of that knee, and you saw the results. Uh, kind of a scary knockout in a lot of ways. I mean, he was stiff as a board, Um but hey, man, those knees can be vicious. And when you're throwing yourself, you know, not not just forward, but down towards an upward swinging, uh, an, an upward trajectory of that knee, man, woo! 
That was the that was crazy. And and in this case too, uh, non-fight related. Uh, apparently, Marlon Moraes. I, I I heard this on the Heavy Hands podcast, which I recommend for anybody. Um, Patrick Wyman was saying that that apparently Moraes is trying to get through his first UFC contract pre- pretty quick, which is why he's taking. I think it's what is three fights in the last couple months here uh, against Rafael Sunsau. Um, and then, of course, this one and, and one that's now suddenly escaping me. I'm sorry. Uh, but he's trying to get through his UFC contract. Hey, maybe as the champ in the World Series of Fighting, he was not the only person who was not getting paid. Wouldn't be surprised. And also, of course, like Donald Cerrone, the more fights you're in, the more you get paid. And the more you get paid and the more you get through your contract, the more you can re-up on your next contract. So I um, think he has set himself up for a prime payday um, if that if that is one of the last couple fights on his contract here because he will re-up and he's now a definite contender in that division. Now one thing that, that kind of came to me after this card watching Ortega Swanson and watching Sterling Moraes, um, this is no surprise, but the lighter weight classes. You know, 155, the lightweight division is considered the deepest in MMA. There are, it's, it's a shark tank, the guys that are in that division. You know, you have Tony Ferguson, you have Justin Gaethje, Eddie Alvarez, you have uh, Conor McGregor, you have Khabib Nurmagomedov, you have Edson Barboza, and those are just the contenders. Those are the guys at the top. I mean, this is a division that has so many quality fighters in it. So many. Jim Miller is there. You've got um, Evan Dunham is there. I mean, it is a tough division to work in. But increasingly over the last couple years, we're seeing now that it's not just lightweight. It's all of these lighter divisions. Featherweight and bantamweight, most especially. That 135 to 155 weight range, man, it is full of incredible fighters. And the thing about it is, it's not just that there's a lot of talent there, okay? It's A, that there's depth, and B, it is the breadth of skills that each of these fighters brings. I mean, the higher the weight classes you go up, the fewer and fewer skills you get. Uh, the more successful you can be with fewer skills. You know, at heavyweight, Francis Ngannou, I mean, we barely know much about him, uh, about his grappling, we barely know much about his takedown defense and all these other things, but we do know that he can knock dudes out. And at heavyweight, sometimes, well, not sometimes, in this case, that's all you need. That's all you need. Uh, Fr- Frank Mir made a, a career out of ha- of being a jujitsu specialist. Brock Lesnar, that guy's a one-trick pony. You know, all these dudes have knockout wins on their record, yes, but they're not striking savants. They have disciplines that they excel at you drop down to light heavyweight same thing there are guys who just you know there there's more breadth of skill there but again all those guys tend to have some kind of weakness same thing at middleweight uh welterweight it starts to even out a lot more you start to see guys with a lot more balance and then lightweight i mean every if you are going to be a contender in the lighter weight classes you need to have more than one skill. You need to have more than two skills. You need to have more than three skills. You have to be 
good. And in some cases, to be the champion, not in some cases, but to be the champion, you have to be great in almost all areas. Now, you know, you look at baseball, for example. In baseball, there is the saying, um, a guy's a 5 tool player. So a 5 tool player in baseball is a guy who can run. He's got speed. He can hit for power. He can hit for contact. He's got good glo- good glove work, so defensively, and he has an arm. He can make throws. That's a five-tool player. And in baseball, they're generally kind of rare, but they're the most uh, promising kind of prospects. In MMA, I, I feel like they're they're. I, we need to come up with some kind of terminology like that. Like there's a five-tool kind of fighter. Like to me, if I think about it, you know, to be a five-tool fighter. You have to be able to strike technically, strike for power, fight at range, grapple, and defend takedowns. If I'm just going to throw that out there. Now, none of those things have to be the same, obviously, because MMA, everyone comes from a different discipline. You can strike technically, be a stri- like a kickboxer, a technical kickboxer, or you can strike technically and be you know, uh, primarily a boxer. You can strike for power. That means maybe you can knock dudes out with your kicks or your punches. You can fight at range. That just means that you got to be able to fight in clinch range. you got to be able to fight in the pocket. And you also have to be able to fight uh, at kicking range. You know, you really should be able to do all three of those things if you want to be like a five-tool fighter. Grappling, I think, speaks for itself. The ability to be in grappling exchanges, either against the cage or on the mat, from the bottom, on top. And then, of course, takedowns. Now, I said defensive takedowns because I think at the end of the day, the most important thing, especially in modern MMA, is being able to stay on the feet, be able to defend takedowns and prevent your opponent from taking you down. Um, But that could just be takedowns in general. Now, this isn't some manifesto I'm making, but the point is that at the lighter weight classes, the contenders, those guys, they're like five-tool fighters. They have all those things. And you can't succeed without them. You can't. It's tough. It's really tough. If you cannot strike technically, you will eventually be exploited. If you can't strike for power, you will eventually be overwhelmed by someone who can, who can hit you hard and scare you off. You, you kind of have to have one of those things at least if you're going to be successful. You know, it's very rare... Um, to not be able to strike technically or strike for power and have much success. Some guys can. You know, some guys definitely can. Uh, Khabib is a great example. That dude is a grappling savant. He is he is an outlier. Everybody else, though, they got to be able to do those other things. So it's pretty exciting to see the breadth of skill, you know, that we're starting to recognize that 135 bantamweight, 145 featherweight, and 155 lightweight, that is a murderer's row of weight classes. And the depth of skill is incredible and so fun to watch. All right, on to news. News world, what do we got? Let's see here. Oh, Manny Pacquiao says his team has been in contact with Conor McGregor's team about a fight. Well, uh, just at, at that doesn't sma- uh, pass the smell test. Uh, mostly because I mean I did, personally, 
That is not a fight I would want to see. I did not want to see Mayweather McGregor. Uh, Pacquiao McGregor, oy, give me strength. I think McGregor has proven that he should stick to MMA. That's where he is at his best. Uh, and most importantly, that's where that's where he should be. That's where we should want to see him fight. Against Pacquiao, I mean, that's a joke. That's a joke of a fight. Either way. That's just my opinion. Now, Dana White has come out and said that if that is the truth, he he will sue Manny Pacquiao because Conor McGregor is a UFC fighter and he's under contract with the UFC, which means you got to negotiate with the UFC. Got to admit, I kind of love that. I kind of, you know, I I might not love every, everything Dana White does, but hey, I love that. That's a good response to it. Also, TMZ caught up with Brendan Schaub about the rumor, and he says that Pacquiao will kill McGregor worse than Floyd Mayweather did. Oh, really? Thanks, Brendan. And the foot comes out of your mouth. The biggest McGregor homer during the lead-up to that fight, the guy who said that McGregor was going to bring the X-Factor, he was going to do things that, no one had ever se- that we'd never seen before because he was from MMA. Bullshit. Now he's saying Pacquiao will kill him? Thanks. Thanks, Brendan. Really going to take your word for it. Francis Ngannou, last seen trying to tear, Fra- um, tear Alistair Overeem's head off and take it home with him to put on his mantelpiece, is going to get his title shot. UFC 220 against Stipe Miocic. Also on that card, like I had been speculating, I thought, you know what? You put that together with another title fight, you're talking, you're talking money. So who do they put him together with? Daniel Cormier versus Volkan Uzdemir. Makes sense. Daniel Cormier still kind of hasn't really proven to be a pay-per-view sell. You stick him with a heavyweight title fight, I mean, that's going to bring a lot of people out, I think. That's a great combo. Um, hopefully that, that card goes off without a hitch. Uh, I mean, some people have... have kind of, I mean, we've all got caught up in the Francis Ngannou hype. Uh, there have been some detractors saying, you know, he's all hype, he's all this. But listen, for a dude who, is only, who only started in the sport, I think, what, four or five years ago... To make it to this point, even even based on just having power alone or pure luck, is incredible. You have to think about the margins for that. There's very little margin for error. He could have lost at any point along the way. That isn't to say that he's going to be our next transcendent star or great uh, heavyweight superstar, but it is to say that this guy is legit. He's legit, and anyone who thinks he's not legit, I don't know what more they need to see. Now, Stipe is going to be a true test for him because, you know, Stipe, Stipe can stand. He can stand and trade. And I think that uh, he's got enough depth of skill to be able to uh, pressure Nganu, which is something that I think Nganu has shown a vulnerability to somewhat. Um, but I feel would be, I feel like that is a, a very good game plan. And Stipe is one of the best pressure uh, heavyweight fighters there is. Maybe one of the best pressure fighters there is, period. And so seeing Francis Ngannou on his back foot, that is going to be a very interesting aspect of that fight. George St. Pierre is now the former middleweight champion of the world. His reign as the welterweight champion lasted however many years. 
like five, six years or something like that. And his reign as the middleweight champion lasted 30 days. So how about that? Shortest middleweight title reign in history to go along with the longest middleweight title reign in history. Love it. Love it. I, I feel this is a, a bit of an unfortunate thing. With the whole situation with GSP coming back and fighting Bisbing, uh, being part of this kind of money fight era, it it's one thing to see Conor McGregor do it. Because Conor McGregor is this is this mouthy guy, self-promoter. GSP was always the humble gentleman. And so I think that there was a bit of a cynical feel to it. Uh, that's what made part of the Bisbing GSP thing hurt so or, or feel so awkward uh, and get such a, re a negative reaction is we don't – GSP was this gentleman and now he is taking part in this cynical uh, enterprise of taking money fights and being part of that. You know, it's it, listen, it's an extremely pragmatic thing to do. It was great for him. He got paid. He won the belt. Clearly it worked out. But it's just a it uh, it was unfortunate that GSP had to be that one. And now that he's vacated the the belt, he sort of he sort of confirmed all the suspicions that everybody's had. And he might not even come back. John Danaher, one of his one of his trainers, says that it's a definite possibility he may not fight again. I mean, I don't know. I think it's it's so fresh and recent to say that he might not fight again considering, you know, he just came back after three years of not fighting and now to say he might not fight again. I mean, I yeah, okay, sure. But we'll see. I feel like GSP will come back for one big scrap. And in the aftermath of that, of course, is he him vacating the belt leaves us with Robert Whitaker versus Luke Rockhold. And that is a money fight. That is a fantastic matchup. And I am so excited to see that fight. You know, the middleweight logjam is now clearing up as a result of this. And these, this is the kind of fight that that we were hoping to have seen more of last year, the Whitakers versus Romeros, the, and now Whitaker versus Rockhold. That is an exciting, interesting fight. Um, one, one funny aspect of this, of course, is that some people are questioning whether Rockhold should be getting the title shot at all, which I find really curious. I think that if, I, definitely he should. He definitely should. We cut down Rockhold as undeserving of a title shot, but but Bisbing's reign was was crap too. So then the guy who beats it's just strange to me that now we're questioning whether Rockhold should be the guy at all. We thought he was going to be the next great, and then we all thought he sort of lost on a quote unquote lucky punch, and that's all that's happened to him since. Otherwise, he's. He's not really a different guy. He came out and beat David Branch. He looked great. But we're going to question whether he should get the next title shot? I don't think much has changed, really. Anyways, that's just my wild conspiracy theory. And lastly, of course, I want to quickly talk about Vasily Lomachenko versus Guillermo Rigondeau. I don't expect many of you to have watched the fight. It was more of a hardcore fans fight. 
and and admittedly, I've only really come back around to watching boxing all that much over the last couple of years. And Lomachenko is one of the reasons why. He's he's one of the reasons why. I highly recommend him. If you really enjoy watching um, MMA fighters with really great movement, uh, uh, fighting guys who can fight at interesting ranges, who have incredible footwork and can almost dance around their opponents and cut really cool, interesting angles, guys like TJ Dillashaw, um, guys like uh, Dominic Cruz, guy, you know, Kelvin Gastelums of the world are in a way. Lomachenko is, is your jam, man. He's fun to watch fight. He's very fun to watch fight. And it was a big win for him beating Guillermo Rigondeaux this weekend. Uh, now really putting himself firmly in that position as one of the best pound-for-pound -pound fighters in the world, if not the best. He's, he's, he's 1B if he's not 1A. And as a last note, Edmonton's Edmonton, Alberta, their city council has banned combat sports for a full year after the results of Tim Haig's death. You know, I, I sort of I agree with this move, actually, knowing uh, being in Calgary, being close to Edmonton, being aware of that commission up there. You know, I've heard a couple horror stories that do not make me feel confident about their ability to protect their fighters. You know, just as an anecdote, I knew a guy out east who, who worked with my wife's father. My father-in-law works for his moving company. This guy was a professional boxer in Canada for a number of years. Fought at cruiserweight. He's in his 50s now. He was, he was asked to do a fight in Edmonton. The guy is in his 50s. He fights at heavyweight now. He's like 250 pounds, not because he works out. On three weeks' notice to fight a 27-year-old boxer, who was six foot seven. This guy was a cruiserweight, super cruiserweight or whatever it was during his career. And he went out there on three weeks notice for this fight. That is not protecting fighters. Now, according, according to this guy, he got in some good shots and he felt that he really, you know, stood his own and great, but he could have had a heart attack. He could, he could have been really badly hurt. And that's the Edmonton commission. They allowed a 52-year-old, out-of-shape, part-time mover to fight on three weeks' notice against a 27-year-old, six-foot-seven, fighting prospect. Enough said. I want to thank you for joining me on The Hurt Take, the MMA podcast for the fans by the fans. I have been your host, as usual, Reese Dobigan. I'm out.